Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode uh, what, 79. Oh, my God. Uh, episode 79 of the podcast, so uh, not a new podcast anymore, but for uh, those of you people out there, out there who are just tuning in for the first time, uh, basically uh, what we do on this podcast, uh, I just invite an author on to uh, discuss a, a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, uh, something uh, we think you guys uh, would like to hear a uh, discussion about, and then at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book and uh, give it a read for yourself. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Jonathan W. White. And Dr. White is Associate Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University. Uh, He is the author and editor of 10 books, including Abraham Lincoln and Treason in the Civil War, The Trials of John Merriman, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams during the Civil War, uh, Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, and to address you as my friend, African Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln. And lastly, he is the author of A House Built by Slaves, African American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, which was published back in February uh, by Roman and Littlefield, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. White, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? I mean, obviously, it seems like a companion uh, to your previous book on the letters Black Americans sent to Abraham Lincoln. Um, did that were those were these two kind of um, uh, thought up and uh, at the same time in the you know, with the with the same idea of doing like two separate volumes like this? Yeah, I actually started them as one book. Around 2014, I started collecting the letters that African Americans wrote to Lincoln. I'm not sure where I originally had the idea, but I, I think I just stumbled across some and thought there was something really interesting about them. And so my idea was to do a book called Emphatically the Black Man's President, which is a quote from Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. And then the subtitle was going to be something like African-American Correspondence and Conversations with Abraham Lincoln. And so I I started putting this together, and by 2016 I had a draft, but I realized that I I was getting way too much for a single book. So at that point I decided to break them in half and do one collection of just the letters and then another more narrative story of – what was it like when black people went to meet with Abraham Lincoln? And so that was the second one. There is a little bit of overlap because some of the visitors brought petitions or letters with them, but for the most part, they tell different stories about black life in the civil war era. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, but, um, you said you started working on this like back in 2014, but, uh, what was your process like for, uh, writing the book? You know, how, uh, how did you decide, uh, uh, you know, how to structure the book and you know what to leave in, what to leave out, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. Originally, I had wanted to do it straight chronological, you know, who are the first visitors and who are the last. And the book still has something of a feel of chronology. Mm-hmm. But I realized there were some themes that came up in different places and the visits didn't necessarily fit a chronological mold there. So 
I have some chapters that deal with really big topics like colonization or emancipation or black soldiers, but then I have other ones that are that are cover the war years as a whole, things like black people bringing gifts to Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and that begins in 1863 or so. And continues through the war, through the end of the war, 1865. And so those are stories of people who are really grateful to Lincoln for issuing the Emancipation Proclamation and doing what he did for African Americans. And so they want to show that gratitude by bringing things to him. Another theme that comes out in the book are Christian ministers who throughout the war came to the White House and asked Lincoln for money. They needed financial assistance to carry out their ministries. And so I sort of brought those stories together into a single chapter as well. I noticed too. I always like to uh, like the uh, dedication pages of books. Um, I'm always interested uh, who authors uh, dedicate the books to, and you know, most times it's you know uh, parents or uh, usually the wife, <laughs> a wife or kids, something like that. Uh, but you uh, you dedicated the book uh, to Lewis Lerman, and so why don't you uh, uh, tell the audience who Lewis Lerman was and, and why you decided to uh, to dedicate the book to him. Yeah, well, and I should first say that I have dedicated a book to my parents <laughs> and another one to my wife and kids. In fact, this morning, my, my kids were um, not wanting to do any writing for a book report I wanted them to write. <laughs> so I pulled off Midnight in America off the shelf and I said, look, I dedicated this book to mommy and you girls and wrote about you in the acknowledgments. And they were just <laughs> over the moon. They, they had forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. This one I wanted to dedicate to Lou Lehrman. Lou is a major player in the history world and in the Lincoln world. Mm -hmm. He was a businessman for many years. He made Rite Aid what it is today. And then, and before that actually, he had been a high school history teacher. And he then became a philanthropist for the history world. And so he and another man, Richard Gilder, dedicated a tremendous amount of money to purchasing important historical documents from American history from the 1600s all the way up to the recent past, and they are on deposit at the New York Historical Society. And then they founded the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History, and the Gilder Lehrman Institute seeks to provide a history education to high school students around the country. And so they have history high schools and they have programs for teachers and for students. They bring students to New York City for archival experiences with their collection. They offer several prizes, two of which are worth $50,000 for the best books on Lincoln and the Civil War. And the and Lincoln Prize, history. yeah. The Lincoln Prize, yeah. yeah. And then they also offer the Frederick Douglass Prize, which is a $25,000 prize for books on slavery and emancipation. And so, and then they have one on George Washington too, on the revolution. And so uh, Lehrman really had an incredible vision for spreading history education and getting young people interested in history and supporting good scholarship on history. And he was a very generous benefactor for me at the formative stages of my career and has been a, a major supporter of my work. And so I wanted to dedicate this book to him out of gratitude for all he's done for the field, but also, you know, his generosity towards me and my career. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Uh, So the book itself, A House Built by Slaves. uh, Oh, actually, tell everyone how you got that title. Yeah, the title... 
The title comes from Michelle Obama's 2016 DNC speech, where she talked about the history of race in America from slavery to civil rights. And she said, so that every morning I wake up in a house that was built by slaves. And I thought that was a really interesting description of racial transformation in America. And there's an aspect of that story that has been unknown for a very long time. And that is the fact that during the Civil War, black people were welcomed into the White House by Abraham Lincoln in a way that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. Prior to 1862, an African-American was more likely to be bought and sold as a slave by a sitting president than to be welcomed as a guest. I found that James Polk bought and sold 19 people while he was president. And prior to the Civil War, there were a handful of moments when black people came to the White House to meet with the president. But really, you could probably count them on one hand. That changed dramatically during the war years. And one of the things that we have to think about how different life was back then was that the president held office hours. So right now I'm sitting in my office at Christopher Newport University. And if it was during the school year and students saw my light on, they would come and knock on the door and come in and chat about whatever they wanted to, classes or what have you. And in the 19th century, presidents did that as well. And people could line up and wait until they had a turn to go and talk to the president and they could talk to him about whatever they wanted. If your listeners have seen the Spielberg Lincoln movie, there's a really wonderful scene that captures this where people came and talked to Lincoln about some bridge or something in Missouri. And for the first year of the war, only white people took advantage of this opportunity. But beginning in April of 1862, African-Americans claim this right as well. And what I suggest in the book is that they are claiming their place as citizens and their right under the First Amendment to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And so when they have problems in their lives, they either write to Lincoln, and my book of letters uh, to address you as my friend has 125 letters written by African-Americans. And then they also claim this right to go meet with the president and ask him for things or talk to him about whatever they wanted to. And that was a really incredible change that happened during the Civil War in this house that was built by slaves. And it, it was a story that had been largely forgotten. Yeah, you put it pretty well. Um, I think it's in the preface or the introduction. It's a very, I think it's still in the uh, italicized <laughs> Roman numeral pages. Um, uh, you put it this way in an unprecedented way a president of the United States treated black men and women as equal participants in an important part of American civic life the right to be constituents with a voice that could be heard by the highest political officer in the nation in the process the executive mansion became a space where black people could make a claim to the rights of U.S. citizenship Lincoln's welcoming of African Americans into the White House for political discussions and social functions therefore was a tremendous step forward in American race relations countering what Chief Chief Justice Taney had written in the Dred Scott decision just a few years earlier, that African Americans were, quote, beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. So, yeah, uh, I I highlighted that quote, or I didn't highlight it because I didn't want to uh, mess up the book, but in my notes, uh, uh, because I thought that... um, that, that put the whole uh, the importance of uh, these meetings um, you know because it seems some of these you know seem like small things but <laughs> in, 
uh, you know, looking uh, from the from a future remove, and you know, um, even these small things are very important. Yeah, and one of the other things that I highlight throughout the book is that when Lincoln met with these visitors, he shook their hands. Yeah. And that might seem like a minor thing to us, although maybe not now in, in the post-COVID era where <laughs> when you meet someone new, you kind of hesitate and you don't know, do you shake hands, do you hug, like what do you do anymore? Yeah, yeah. Um, but for Lincoln, he always shook his visitors' hands, and it didn't matter if they were black or white, male or female, he always shook their hands. And in that era... White people generally did not do that. Yeah. I found a progressive, basically pre-war socialist named Horace Greeley, who's very famous. And he was the most important Republican newspaper editor of that era. And he ran for president in 1872. And he refused to shake the hands of black men who came to meet him. But that was not Lincoln's approach. Lincoln mm -hmm. always shook hands and, and treated people like equals. Yeah, I was always struck by the story, I mean, this isn't in the book, but the, the shaking hands thing, um, when he's going to sign the Emancipation Proclamation on New Year's Day in 1863, but first he has the uh, the New Year's um, sort of social function that they had at the time where basically all, all these people would get a chance to, you know, walk in the White House and come and greet Lincoln and shake his hand and meet the First Lady and that sort of thing, you know, and just pass through the line. So he's shaking hands. You know, hundreds or maybe even a you know a thousand hands, uh, <laughs> basically all morning or whatever. And then when he's finished, he goes to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, and he's uh, nervous that um, because he's been shaking hands all day that he's he's going to uh, screw up his signature and or make it look like that he hesitated signing the document, and therefore that he uh, you know that people are like, oh look at his signature, it's a little you know, crooked or whatever, so maybe Lincoln was having second thoughts about, you know, freeing the slaves and emancipating the slaves or whatever, and he wanted to make sure uh, that his hand was steady uh, to do that, and um, uh, so, you know, he took a little time to just, you know, <laughs> make, make sure his hand was okay, but just the the uh, the foresight of his to think, like, well, you know, I better make sure that this signature is, um, you know, uh, there's nothing to, <laughs> there's nothing you can read into the signature. I was and always struck by that story. What's funny about that is he had planned to sign the document, the Emancipation Proclamation, before the New Year's reception. Yeah. But when he read through it, he found a typographical error in it, and mm. he did not want any mistakes in this edict. And so he sent it back to the State Department and had them redo it and then went down to the New Year's reception and shook all these hands. So yeah, by the time he came back up, his his arm was tired and he was worried that if if it showed any sort of evidence that it shook, yeah. that people might think he hesitated. But what's also really cool about that story is that when Lincoln signed documents, he almost always signed them a. Lincoln. Mm -hmm. But on the Emancipation Proclamation, he signed it Abraham Lincoln. He wanted he wanted everyone to know that his heart was fully in it. And he said in that moment, if my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act and my whole soul is in it. I mean, yeah. people today often criticize Lincoln. And one of my goals in the book is to push back at this criticism. People often say, you know, Lincoln didn't really care about emancipation. He only did it to win the war or to save the Union. His heart and soul weren't really in emancipation and i i just think it couldn't be further from the truth yeah i agree um 
Anyway, onto that. So uh, before uh, before Lincoln becomes president, what is his um, what are his personal relationships with black people like before uh, before he becomes president of the United States? How how often does he uh, you know interact uh, with black people, and what are those uh, interactions like? Well, he was born in the state of Kentucky, which was a slave owning state, and so he almost certainly encountered slaves there, although he was very young and, and wouldn't have remembered most or any of those encounters later in life. But his parents were part of an anti-slavery Baptist church, and they then, when Lincoln was young, moved to Indiana, and Lincoln later said that that move was partly on account of slavery. So part of the rationale was, we want to move out of the slave state of Kentucky into Indiana. He then, as a young man, moved to Illinois, and even though Illinois was a free state, there were still forms of unfree labor there. So in 1853, Illinois made it illegal for black people to move into the state, and if they settled there, they could be arrested and fined, and I think the fine was $50, and if they didn't have that money, they would be put in jail and then auctioned off and a white person could come and buy their labor for a set period of time to pay that debt. And so Lincoln, although he's coming into manhood and most of his adult life are in a free state, there there is there are some vestiges of slavery that survive in Illinois even into the mid-19th century. He lives in Springfield in what today we would consider an integrated neighborhood. He has black neighbors. There are some black servants. He has at least about two dozen black law clients that he deals with. And the most famous was a man named William Fleurville, who was a Haitian immigrant who became a friend of Lincoln's and Lincoln's barber. And so Lincoln is dealing with African-Americans to some extent on a daily basis in Springfield, but it's a very small black population. And that then is going to change for him when he gets to Washington and there's a much larger black population in the nation's capital. But a lot of times we think that Lincoln didn't see a lot of enslaved people before the war, and he did. Um, he also made two flatboat trips to New Orleans, one in 1828 and one in 1831. And he did this because local businessmen asked him to do it, and it was a way to make some money for his family. And on one of these flatboat trips, while he was heading down the Mississippi River with his friend Alan Gentry, they kind of parked the boat on the side of the river in Louisiana one night, and a group of seven slaves saw these two young white men with this boat full of animals and produce and, and goods. And the slaves decided to attack the boat, and they attacked these two young men, and Lincoln and Alan Gentry are fighting back. Uh, but they're kind of losing this fight because it's two against seven. And Gentry yells, Lincoln, get the guns and shoot. And when the, la when the slaves thought that Lincoln and Gentry had guns, they ran off. Um, but that was one of Lincoln's early encounters with slavery, was getting attacked by seven men in Louisiana. And one of the great ironies of that moment is that some of those men were probably still alive 30 years later and freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. And then in Louisiana... Lincoln almost certainly saw slave auctions because slaves were being auctioned off on a daily basis throughout the city. And there are stories that survive about Lincoln seeing these auctions and being very, becoming very angry as a result of it. 
Now, there are quotes attributed to Lincoln from this meeting, like that he said to his friends, let's get out of here, boys. You know, one day I'm going to hit that thing and hit it hard, meaning I'm going to kill slavery. The, the likelihood of Lincoln actually having said that is pretty pretty slim. You know, I can't remember things that I said yesterday <laughs> or a week ago. And, and pe- friends of Lincoln's were remembering those quotes 30 years later. So the quotes probably aren't true, but I do think it that was those were formative moments in Lincoln's life where as a young man he sees he sees slave auctions and and he sees the evil of slavery. He also encountered slavery when he would visit his friends uh the Speeds or his in-laws the Todds in mm. Kentucky and he would encounter slavery there. And he, from a young age he knew slavery was immoral and wrong. And that shaped the way he thought about it for his entire life. Yeah, uh, uh, the quotes about him, you know, saying I'm going to hit it hard one day, or uh, it seems too good to be true, and they're probably, you know, <laughs> they're probably, uh, you know, made up stories after Lincoln, you know, had been assassinated and sort of achieved his martyr status. But then, then again, there are people like, um, you know, like Winston Churchill who uh, were, like, telling their friends, like, a very young, like, when he was, like, a teenager, like, Churchill was like, I have these dreams where I am going to, uh, the world will be in peril, the empire, the British empire will be in peril, Mm. and I will be called upon to lead the British empire uh, to victory and and save the world and stuff like that, and people are like, "Eh, okay, Winston, that's, you know, good for you. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it turned out to be true. So I don't know. Maybe I, the people of uh, providential bent, I guess. Maybe I don't yeah. know. But I don't. But Lincoln seems to be not that type of person <laughs> that, that Churchill was in that regard. So yeah, it probably is. Um, like I said, too good to be true. But uh, but it makes for a good story nonetheless. Although Lincoln Lincoln was he was raised in a Calvinist home, hmm. and so he certainly believed in an all-powerful God who superintended human affairs. It yeah. led Lincoln to a, a place of fatalism as an adult where he often would become depressed thinking about these sort of things, thinking about death and mortality. During the Civil War, I think Lincoln developed a really deep understanding of the way God moves in the world mm-hmm. and an understanding that God is sovereign over over life. Yeah, so, yeah, but... yeah who knows? Yeah, that definitely comes through, uh, especially as the war progresses, progresses and just becomes you know, so incredibly bloody. Uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 it just surfaces more and more and more in, in his writing. Not even just his um, his public pronounces, but even in the in his little private uh, notes to himself. Of course, there's that famous uh, that little uh, little treatise on. <laughs> On God that he that he writes to himself of yeah you know about, about the war and everything but uh, hey, that's a, that's another story um, sure. yeah so let's get uh, into the visit so who are who was Lincoln's first uh, black visitor at the White House his first black visitor that I could find was an a bishop named Daniel Payne and Payne was in Washington D.C. for the African Methodist Episcopal Church conference or their annual meeting. And he delivered a sermon in April of 1862 to a black audience, basically saying, you're about to become free, 
And in freedom, you need to be responsible citizens. So don't drink heavily and get jobs and work hard and save money and and make your life better and make life better for your children. And so he delivers this sermon and he knew in that moment that Congress had just passed a law abolishing slavery in Washington, but Lincoln hadn't signed it yet. And so the next day he goes to the White House and he presents his card and he goes in to meet with the president and he pushes Lincoln to sign this law. And Lincoln is not willing to yet show his hand. He says, well, for as many people as want me to sign this, there are an equal number who don't want me to sign it. And they talk for about 45 minutes and then pain goes away and Lincoln signs the law, I think about a day later. Now, my personal view is that Lincoln was always going to sign this law because it did most of what he wanted in terms of abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia. But it, it couldn't have hurt for this black man to come and have this conversation with him. The, the remarkable aspect of it is that for the first time in American history, a president welcomed a black man into the White House and they talked politics. They, yeah. they had a, a conversation and they showed respect to one another. Daniel Payne had gone to the White House once before. He had, in 1843, there was a massive disaster on the Potomac River where some guns were fired for show on a, a vessel called the Princeton and they exploded and killed cabinet officials and their servants and some other people. And after that explosion, there was a, a funeral at the White House for one of the black servants who'd been killed. And Daniel Payne went to the White House and he met John Tyler. And Tyler did not treat Payne with any respect. And reflecting on that moment later in the 1860s, Payne talked about how much more kindly and cordially and respectfully Lincoln treated him than Tyler had. And that sort of set the precedent. Within a week, several other black men go to the White House and meet with Lincoln to talk about colonization. And then by August of 1862, and then throughout the war, more and more people are coming to the White House. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that August uh, August 14th, 1862 uh, meeting um, with the delegation of uh, black Washingtonians about voluntary colonization the sort of an infamous uh meeting now but it um but it's also unlike uh pretty much all these other meetings he will have with the black men and women i mean that we know of um and that there's a presence the presence of a stenographer mm -hmm. at the meeting so um what well, talk about that meeting and uh what does the president what does the presence of uh, of a stenographer in that meeting indicate uh, about it. So on July 22nd, 1862, Lincoln calls his cabinet together and says, the time has come, I, I'm going to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And Lincoln sees this as a way to win the war. You free the slaves so that they stop helping the Confederates and they can begin helping the Union instead. And, and I should say, they're not helping the Confederates by their own will. They're being coerced to do right. it. And Lincoln's Secretary of State, William Seward, essentially says that's the right move, but the wrong time, because the war was going very badly for the Union war effort, or for the Union. And what Seward was afraid of is if you issue an Emancipation Proclamation now in the summer of 1862, it'll look like a, a, 
a last gasp before the union dies and the powers of the world like england and france will think that this is to use a modern metaphor a hail mary pass at the end of the game mm -hmm. right lose and so seward convinces lincoln to wait until they've won a major victory on the battlefield and the problem is they are not going to get a major victory until september 17th yeah, because mcclellan and pope suck so I mean, that's <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And so during this period between July and September, Lincoln does several things to strategically prepare the North for what is coming. And so one of them is in August of 1862, on August 22nd, he writes a letter to Horace Greeley saying, my paramount object in this war is to save the Union and it's not to either save or to destroy slavery. And another thing that he does is he invites, he sends a messenger to the black leaders of Washington and says, Bring, send some of your leaders to come meet with me. And so they get together at a local church and they elect five delegates who come to the White House on August 14th and they meet with Lincoln. And this is the first time that a sitting president invites a black delegation to come to the White House. And Lincoln essentially then lectures them for an hour about why black people are the cause of the war and they should go somewhere else through this process of colonization. And as a Lincoln guy, this is one of two moments that I just wish hadn't happened because he says these really condescending things to them. And it's really easy to bludgeon him for this today. If your listeners have read Nicole Hannah Jones's introductory essay to the Project 1619 in The New York Times, she spends a fair bit of time talking about this meeting. But what often gets left out is the context. And again, the context is that Lincoln has already decided to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. He can't do it yet because the, the Union Army has to win a battlefield victory. And so he has to then persuade the North, hey, if emancipation comes, maybe don't worry about it so much. And so two of the ways he does it are through this letter to Horace Greeley, where he says, my paramount object in this war is to save the Union, and this meeting with the black delegation. So the letter to Greeley, Lincoln is basically saying to the North, if you believe in saving the Union, then you'll do whatever it takes to to do that. So if that means freeing the slaves or not freeing the slaves, we will do that. Or freeing to, just some of the slaves. Or which freeing are, some, which that's is, right. Yeah. Lincoln says in that letter, if I could do it by freeing all or none or some of the slaves. Yeah. And ultimately, Lincoln takes that middle ground. And then in this meeting with the black delegation, Lincoln's audience, I think, is not really black Americans. It's white voters in the North. They don't want the slaves to become free because they are worried that black people will move from the south up into the north take away jobs depress mm -hmm. wages and so lincoln is essentially saying to them look while i'm doing you know if emancipation comes you don't need to be too worried about it because i'm going to try to push colonization as well and you know on on the one hand again it's really unfortunate that lincoln said some of the condescending things he said on the other hand, it's really remarkable that Lincoln invited black people to the White House for a meeting like this. And Hor uh, there was a newspaper editor and abolitionist named William Lloyd Garrison who called this something like a spectacle as 
uh, extraordinary as it was, actually now I'm going to botch the quote, um, <laughs> but let me see, I have it here. He called it a spectacle as humiliating as it was extraordinary. Mm. And, and it was humiliating to see the president do what he did and treat these people this way, but it was extraordinary too because he was inviting black people to the White House. And so the stenographer was there to make sure that the message got out, that the stenographer wrote down every word that Lincoln said so that the white public could read it. Now, the last thing I'll say is shortly after this meeting, Lincoln appears to have met with another black minister from D.C., a man named Henry McNeil Turner. And Turner was a correspondent for the Christian Recorder, which was the most important black newspaper at that time. And Turner wrote an, a letter to the editor describing Lincoln's views, and he essentially hints that Lincoln isn't really interested in, in black colonization, that he said it was a strategic move to prepare people for emancipation. And he said that Lincoln stood in, a ne in need of a place to point to. Mm -hmm. In other words, like a magician has misdirection, you know, you get people's attention and you point them somewhere else so that you can do what you really want to do. Lincoln was pointing people's attention to colonization while he was getting while his end game was emancipation. And so there's a long background to say Lincoln's critics today often take this colonization meeting or the Greeley letter to say, well, Lincoln didn't really care about black people. He didn't care about emancipation. He only did it to the war, win the war. He wanted to send them out of the country. And it is true. Lincoln believed in colonization. But Lincoln also knew that it was never going to work to send four million people out of the country. Yeah. And so there was a very real political calculation going on here. Yeah, we have to remember this is... Um August 1862. It's just a few months before a midterm election, you know, mm -hmm. in Congress. Um, so you, <laughs> I mean, if you, Lincoln's the sort of the consummate politician. You know, the the Emancipation Proclamation is a, it's a radical act. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I, I understand. I, I think that uh, the even more so the the than the colonization issue of that meeting. I think the tone. Lincoln's tone is the more problematic, to use that word, right. uh, nowadays. And even, I mean, granted, colonization is silly uh, and racist, uh, but uh, but it seems like the tone you know, when you when you read it, it's like, oh, like he, he said it that way. And it's like, oh, like I wish he could have used like a nicer tone with the colonization yeah. thing. But just the fact that uh, you know, um, like I said, he's trying to sort of make the, the this radical act of the Emancipation Proclamation as malleable uh, to as many white northerners as he can, because then we have to remember, he's not very, not that popular of a president. I mean, he was, uh, he wasn't elected with uh, anywhere close to a, a majority. Right. The, war, the war is not going very well, uh, especially, well, the, the West is going a little bit better, but uh, especially in the East, and, and this is this is around the time when the war is starting to get incredibly bloody. Uh, right. You know, you have Shiloh in April 1862, and then uh, shortly after, you know, I think in uh, June are the the Seven Days Battles around mm -hmm. Richmond, and then Second Manassas, which is another bloody one. Uh, we're not at Antietam yet, but um, but I mean the, the it's starting to settle into everybody that one this war is not going to be 
short, and two, uh, the carnage is going to be something that uh, uh, no one really, uh, maybe other than like Sherman, uh, uh, had any sort of uh, uh, reckoning with, you know, uh, beforehand. So, right. I like I said, I see the the point, the the smart, because you don't want to get too far ahead of public opinion as you know, as a politician. You know, it's you have to lead in the way you think is most. Uh, to, you have to lead to the direction or to the endpoint you want to get as quickly as possible without going too far ahead of people and then losing the ability to to get to the finish line. Right, that's basically all politics. So I see what Lincoln is doing. Like I said, it's just like the 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 tone and like just some of the the words he uses. It's just like oh, yeah. like Abe. Like you could have just in a little, you know, <laughs> a little bit well, more. Things I try to show is that by the end of the war, it changes. Yeah. So in his second inaugural address, he doesn't blame black people for the war. He blames slavery, and he places the blame on white people of the North and the South. And mm-hmm. so there's a very different perspective that he has developed over the course of the war, where he sees where the fault really lies and he says so publicly yeah i mean that this meeting is so radically different uh this colonization meeting uh lincoln acts in a way that's so different from the way he will uh act uh around black people um you know in the future and in in, and even in his previous history it almost it's almost like he's playing a character uh yeah you know what i mean and it's it's um it's it's strange how unique uh lincoln's sort of the way he speaks to these men it, it's weird how that is almost uniquely uh uh to that one moment mm-hmm. you know? yeah and that's one of the other big points i try to make in the book is that Lincoln's critics today love to point to this meeting. Sure. And it's the one that's different from every other one. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can, we need to look at it within its context and understand what Lincoln was doing. And we can certainly be critical of how he did it. But then we also have to recognize that this one was different. And I think that a lot of Lincoln's critics today need to see that broader history of how he treated black visitors for the entirety of the war. Right, but it doesn't fit the... <laughs> but then it wouldn't fit the narrative that they're trying to... Right, in the past, right. You know, so, but anyway. Um, all right, so on to... Uh, happier meetings uh than the colonization one let's uh talk about um well why don't we talk about frederick Douglass? because uh Douglass is someone who's going to meet lincoln uh three times uh right. in the white house and uh you know he's gonna have um or the way lincoln treats Douglass, especially in his first visit um makes a very large impression on 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 the man on frederick Douglass and uh how he's going to um approach the idea of lincoln and lincoln's place in history and lincoln's uh sort of uh, his place among black americans in history and uh, so let's talk about these uh these these meetings with with frederick Douglass. Yeah, so the, Lincoln meets with Douglas the first time in August of 1863. And at this point, black men have been enlisting in the army for about nine months or so. 
And they were promised to be paid $13 a month, which is what white soldiers were paid. But instead, they were paid as laborers, and so they only got $10 a month. And then they had an additional $3 deducted from their pay. So they are expecting $13 a month, and instead they're getting 7 And as you might imagine, they're really angry about this, because when you go on the battlefield, the bullets don't discriminate based on the color of your skin, and you're just as likely to be killed whether you're white or black. The other issue that was really alarming is that the Confederate government had said that black men captured in arms would be treated like slaves in insurrection. And so they'll they'll either be executed or sold into slavery. And so you could have been born free in the north, but if you get caught by the Confederates, you're going to you could be sold or murdered. And so Douglas had been working as a recruiter in Massachusetts and throughout the north for trying to recruit black soldiers. And he actually had two sons go off to fight. And when the soldiers are facing this pay inequality and then also the threat of Confederate atrocities, Douglas is furious. And so completely uninvited, he goes to the White House in August of 1863 and meets with Lincoln. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if Lincoln's going to welcome him in or turn him away or refuse to see him. But Lincoln welcomes him in. They have a really nice conversation. Douglas presses Lincoln on these issues and Lincoln responds. And and Douglas is not altogether satisfied with Lincoln's responses. Lincoln says to him, look, there's a financial benefit to becoming free. And so slaves who become free have to consider that as part of their pay. Douglas doesn't really like that answer. And on the issue of of Confederate atrocities, Douglas wants Lincoln to respond eye for an eye and to retaliate against Confederate POWs. And Lincoln doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to punish an innocent Confederate POW who has not committed an atrocity for something that was done by a Confederate in the field. And so, you know, Douglas goes away from this meeting a little frustrated, but also with a a deeper appreciation for the political constraints and pressures that are on Lincoln. But the other thing that Douglas goes away from this meeting with is is a sense of Lincoln treated him as a man. He didn't discriminate against him because of the color of his skin. And Douglas had not had that experience a whole lot in his life. Now, a year later, the war is going badly for the Union in the summer of 1864, and Lincoln becomes convinced that he's going to lose re-election. And so this time, he calls Frederick Douglass to come to the White House, and the two men sit down together, and Lincoln says to him that the slaves aren't running away as quickly as he had hoped they would as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation, and he essentially says, we need to come up with a plan to free as many slaves as possible before the next inauguration. Because if Lincoln loses and a Democrat comes into power, that Democrat will rescind the Emancipation Proclamation and the golden opportunity of freedom will be gone. And so Douglas goes home and he writes out a plan for sending bands of scouts into the Confederacy to basically shout from the rooftops, run away now while Lincoln is in office before your chance is gone. And this meeting is so important because today, Again, Lincoln's critics say, well, Lincoln's heart wasn't really in emancipation. He only did it to win the war and save the Union. It was nothing but a military necessity to him. But if you look at this meeting, what you see in Lincoln 
is that he wants to spread freedom as far and as wide as possible, not as a military necessity, but because it's the morally right thing to do. Yes. And Douglas came to see that in this moment. And what's really remarkable is that Frederick Douglass had been one of Lincoln's greatest critics for the first <laughs> half of the war. He loathed the Abraham Lincoln in 1861. He was horrified by the positions Lincoln took in his first inaugural address. But by meeting Lincoln in August of 63 and getting uh, to see Lincoln and meet with him and see that Lincoln would treat him as a man, and then seeing Lincoln's heart for emancipation in August of 1864 transformed the way that Douglas thought about Lincoln. So that by the time they meet the third time in March of 1865 at Lincoln's second inaugural, they're calling each other friend. And I think it's a really incredible transformation. We often talk about how Lincoln changed during the war. We talk less frequently about how people like Frederick Douglass changed during the war. But it was the direct meetings with Lincoln that caused him to change his views. Yeah, and there was almost a fourth meeting. Um, mm-hmm. Just a few days before Lincoln died, Lincoln invited Douglass to tea at the at the soldier's home i believe not at the white house right uh, yeah and douglas had a speaking engagement <laughs> and douglas's policy was if i've made a commitment i'm not going to break it yeah. and so he turned lincoln down and then lincoln dies and douglas later said if i had known that that's you know this would be my last chance i would have turned down that yeah engagement because part. you like to think uh you don't know uh but it's not likely Lincoln invited him to tea just to, you know, chit-chat. Um, right. It, so you would have to think there was something Lincoln wanted to discuss with Douglas, and it would probably have to do with, well, now that the war is wrapping up, uh, you know, Reconstruction yep. and Black Rights. So, right. so you have to think, like, my God, like, what like what would we have known about Lincoln's intentions uh, uh, for Reconstruction if Douglas had gone to that, you know, had accepted that invitation to join him for tea. Um, or maybe not, you know, maybe wouldn't have, but it, it's sort of <laughs> almost keeps you awake at night thinking about like, you know, like what could have come from that meeting, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm a weirdo. I think I, I spent a lot of time <laughs> no, talking about stuff like exactly that. No, I think exactly right though. <laughs> and Douglas would have told us. I mean, that's. Yeah, absolutely. Douglas Absolutely. would have then gone out on this, the the trail and, and given a speech where he would have said what he talked about. And that's the thing. Lincoln's law partner called Lincoln the most shut-mouthed man I ever knew. Mm-hmm. Lincoln rarely bore his soul or gave people insight into what his strategy was. Um, but when he did, when he met with Douglas, I mean, Douglas then went out and told us what yeah. happened. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it's just like, oh, man, what could have, you know, I wish he would have. As Douglas said, he wished he would have canceled it too. But um, yeah, it's just that's too bad. Uh, but another uh, very interesting visitor to uh, uh, Lincoln's White House is this uh, this man Alexander T. Augusta. So uh, why don't you tell us about him? Because this is a pretty um, uh, he's got a pretty remarkable uh, life journey. This guy. Yeah. So Augusta was born free in Norfolk, Virginia, which is about 30 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. And his family moved to Baltimore in the 1830s, and he became a barber, which was a common profession for black men in that era. And he wanted to become a doctor. He applied to medical school in Philadelphia and was denied admission on account of his race. 
And so he moved to Toronto, where he attended Trinity Medical College. And while he was there, he then practiced medicine for about six years and trained other black doctors. When the Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st, 1863, Augusta read about it and saw that Lincoln was allowing now for black soldiers to join the army. And so on August, uh, on January 7th, he sent a letter to Lincoln saying, I'd like to be of some use to my race. Can I come become an, a doctor, a surgeon in the army? And so the War Department invited Augusta to come down to Washington to be examined. And the examining surgeons did not want Augusta to become a doctor. They didn't like the idea of a black officer and a black doctor in the army. So they tried to have his invitation rescinded. But the War Department said, no, you've got to examine him. They gave him the harshest examination they could come up with. They, one doctor called it a squeezing process. <laughs> and Augusta passed with flying colors. He was then commissioned an officer in the army. But even though he's now an officer and a surgeon, he still faces incredible discrimination. He has his epaulets ripped off by some rowdy guys in Baltimore. He is beaten up by a mob in Baltimore in May of 63. In uh, early 1864, he tries to ride on a streetcar in Washington, D.C. to testify at a military trial, and the conductor won't let him on, says you've got to stand on the outside with the con with the driver, you can't go inside. And he, But he doesn't take any of these slights sitting down. He fights against them. He takes his story public. And in fact, the Senate, the U.S. Senate was debating what was happening to Augusta. And an editor, I think in an Indiana newspaper, very snidely remarked, well, if Augusta is you know, being treated so badly, he should go to the White House and talk to his commander in chief. <laughs> and Augusta almost certainly didn't see that editorial, but that's actually exactly what he did. In February of 1864, he and another black doctor named Anderson Abbott both went to the White House for a party. Lincoln would hold receptions in the evening that were open to the public, and anyone who wanted to could go. And for the most part, only white – well, up to that point, only white people had ever gone. But these two black surgeons decide that we are going to go. And so they show up uninvited. They they go in. They give their outer wraps to the, the servants at the door. They go in to shake Lincoln's hand, and Lincoln eagerly, and that's the word Abbott used, Lincoln eagerly approached Augusta and shook his hand. And at that point, Mary Lincoln looks over and sees this, and she doesn't like this. So she sends her son Robert over, who says, are you really going to allow this innovation to take place? And Lincoln turns to his son and says, why not? And at that, Robert slinks back over to his mother, and Lincoln turns back to Augusta and shakes his hand again, and then shakes Abbott's hand. And then the two black doctors walk through the East Room of the White House with just this huge crowd looking on at them, you know, wondering what is going on here. <laughs> and Lincoln's private secretary, William Stoddard, was there, and he called this, he said this moment was a practical assertion of Negro citizenship. In other words, you know, you had quoted it before. The Supreme Court said that black people are not citizens, that they have no rights that the white man is bound to respect. But here were two black doctors saying, we are citizens, we are soldiers, we deserve certain rights. We deserve the right to go meet with our commander in chief, just like any other person would. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, you mentioned it before, his... Uh 
Lincoln's work uh, helping black Christian mis- uh, missionaries. But uh, talk about talk a little bit about that in depth and uh, the the black picnics at the White House on the White House grounds, uh, which Lincoln allows, which are uh, pretty fascinating, especially since the first one is a uh, a Catholic mm-hmm. <laughs> picnic, which is uh, which is like doubly weird, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Black so yeah, talk a little bit about that. Uh, so a lot of christian ministries came to the white house seeking money some for things like colonization some for things like going into the south to educate and evangelize former slaves and then in the summer of 1864 two groups in washington dc come to lincoln and say can we use the white house grounds to have a picnic we'll have speakers and music and we'll sell we'll have vendors who will sell food and drinks and so forth and the first group was in July of 64, and they do it. Uh, it's a group of black Catholics. They had been meeting in the basement of the Catholic, the white Catholic church, and the white Catholic priest thought, you know, they need their own building. And so this was how they raised funds. And it was so successful that then the local black Baptists thought, well, we should do this too. And so they <laughs> wrote to Lincoln and said, can we, can we follow suit? And Lincoln uh, agreed and let them do it. And what was really remarkable is that the Black Baptists met on a, they did their event on a day that Lincoln had proclaimed as a day of mourning. And so you really get this sense of the different meanings of the war for different people. So white Americans are, you know, fasting and praying about the massive loss, and black Americans are feeling that massive loss as well. But black Americans also see in the war. an opportunity of hope that freedom is on the move that people are are coming out of bondage and that the the chance for political rights is on the horizon and so they have this huge party and what's funny is you know the press in that era was very partisan now i think the press today is very partisan as well except for that you know (laughs) they're not as as open about it yeah right they pretend that they're nonpartisan, but we all know they are Back then, they didn't pretend. So if you were a Republican, you read Republican newspapers. If you were a Democrat, you read Democratic newspapers. And you read the Democrat newspapers, and these editors are livid. They say, you know, white people are never allowed to do this sort of thing. Only black people are. This is just, these picnics are a symbol of how Lincoln favors black people more than white people, how he wants social equality among the races. And in in black in white Democrats' eyes, that's just the worst possible thing that could come out of the Civil War. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, man, we already gone like 15 minutes. Wow. Oh, uh, boy. Uh, a couple more things before we go, uh, if you don't mind staying an extra couple minutes. Happy uh, to. Okay, great. Um uh, the the story of the uh, the the Baltimore Bible, this ornate Bible that was uh, presented to Lincoln. Um, tell the story about that, and then it has an interesting um, post-Lincoln history after uh, after his death. That uh, um, its movement back and forth. It's really uh, interesting. So uh, tell everybody uh, about the, the that Baltimore Bible. In the summer of 1864, the black community of Baltimore decided that they wanted to give a gift to Lincoln to thank him for emancipation. And they raised over 500, I think $60 or around $560, and they purchased a beautiful pulpit Bible and they had it, you know, bound in a purple velvet cover with gold plates on it and the gold one of the gold plates 
shows Lincoln breaking the chains of a slave. And they presented it to Lincoln in September of 1864. So this is during his presidential reelection campaign. And a few ministers from Baltimore come to meet with Lincoln and they they make a few remarks where, again, they thank him for what he has done to free the slaves. And they talk about how the black community views him, how grateful they are. But then they also kind of have some language that signifies that they they want to be part of the American family, that they have been loyal to the cause of the union in a way that most Southerners have not been and that they should have their rights protected. And black people had been pushing Lincoln for black voting rights all year in 1864. And so you kind of get the sense that they are hinting at that as well. And Lincoln responds with a, a really nice little speech thanking them for what they had done and for bringing this to them. And he he loved this Bible. And in fact, Sojourner Truth met with Lincoln about a month later on October 29, 1864. And as part of their conversation, Lincoln brings her over to the table in his office and says, here, look at this. And they sit down and flip through the Bible together. And, and Sojourner Truth comments on just how beautiful of a gift it was. Well, the Bible stays in the Lincoln family hands. It, it stays in Robert, his son's possession, for the next 50 years. And around 1915 or 1916, the leaders of Fisk University in Nashville write to Robert Lincoln and they say, you know that Bible that the black people of Baltimore gave your dad? We would love to have that. It would make a lot of sense to have back in the hands of the black community as a symbol of our connection with our between our people and your father. And Robert mulls it over and decides, yeah, that that sounds like a good idea. And so he probably would have given that Bible to the Library of Congress along with many of the papers that he turned over to the Library of Congress, but instead he gives it to this university, this historically black institution, and it is now still on display and you can go see it there um, in the John Hope and Aurelia Franklin Library. And I, as part of the research for this book, I went down there and I read through their files about how the donation was made. And then the archivist took me over where it's in a glass box and she took the glass cover off oh and we looked through it. And I, I actually, I was able to get a, a really nice picture of the, the golden plate on the front cover. And we used that as part of the dust jacket of the book. And it's this really incredible incredible gift that was very meaningful to Lincoln and continues to have great meaning. When the Museum of the Bible opened in Washington, D.C., Fisk gave it as a temporary loan to the Museum of the Bible, and so for a very short period, it was back in Washington for the first time in 50, or in, in 150 years. And um, But your listeners, if they're in Nashville, can go and see it for themselves. It's really worth doing. Yeah. Uh, didn't they lose, lose track of it for a couple of years? I mean, it was a big part of their, like, 4th of July. Was it 4th of July celebrations or Emancipation yeah, Day celebration? Yeah, they used all sorts of patriotic celebrations. Yeah. 4th of July, Emancipation Day, Flag Day, those kind of things. And then in <sighs> the 19, around the 1930s, the, the people who had helped bring it there 
either retired or left and other people just kind of forgot about it and it, yeah. it disappeared for a while until a new archivist came and said hey we gotta we gotta find this and make sure that it gets its proper due yeah and it has ever since that's good um so i was just thinking about that actually we were uh about this gift and and you know the again the argument from like the 1619 project and a lot of these other um uh, narratives that oh you know Lincoln really didn't care about black people um, or about slavery uh, you know like I said his primary concern was the union blah 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 he had to be dragged kicking and screaming to do anything uh, you know all the abolitionists were telling him to do these things years earlier and um, you know he was a ditherer and blah 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 uh, but uh, the reaction to Lincoln's assassination from black people. Uh, the way Lincoln was seen by um, by black people in the years after the Civil War, uh, it really belies that argument because I mean, if I think black people back then would have been <laughs> smart enough to figure out that like, oh yeah, who cares about Abraham Lincoln? He didn't really care about us, you know. Like it took him till Jan- uh, you know January 1863 to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Look at this ditherer, you know. This guy doesn't care. Uh, but that's not the case. There was, uh, the outpouring of grief on Lincoln's death by black people and just the way he's seen by them. Like, again, like I said, it's just sort of, if Lincoln really didn't, uh, genuinely care about these people or, or about slavery, then I don't think the reaction, uh, to his passing, uh, to his assassination would have been the way it was yeah. by his contemporaries, you know? That's one of the things... So between these two books, in To Address You as My Friend and then In a House Built by Slaves, I try to recapture the way that black people of the Civil War era viewed Lincoln. Because the way, you know, those views have evolved over time. And since the 1950s and 60s with the civil rights movement, movements, African-American views of Lincoln have really declined and the admiration that was once there is not as prevalent and so in this book i as you described i really wanted to recapture these moments and these views and using as many sources as i can so in their own hand or things that other people overheard them saying and universally black people realize that they have more to lose in the death of abraham lincoln than anyone else they don't know if they will be protected, if the next president will stop them from being re-enslaved. They don't know what will happen with the Emancipation Proclamation once the war is over, and if they don't have this leader in place who, for the first time, has acted like their president. Frederick Douglass, who again is very critical of Lincoln at different periods of his life, but in June of 1865, Douglass gives a eulogy where he says Lincoln was emphatically the black man's president. And that could never have been said of any president prior to 1861 or 1863. Mm. And um, it's, you know, I had originally in the in the epilogue of the book, I had originally traced African-American views from 1865 up to Obama in 2009. And for the sake of space, I, I decided to cut most of that 
and I, I end the book really around 1876 with Frederick Douglass giving a speech in Washington, D.C., a very famous speech. At the Freedmen's Memorial, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it's a really interesting thing where, I again, I think that the African-American views of Lincoln during the war have been largely forgotten, and I'm hoping these books can recover that. One of the problems, I think, is that people today, you know, Frederick Douglass is certainly the most important black figure of the 19th century. But we often think, well, he must be representative. And I don't think he's at all representative black political thought in the 1800s. I think he's he's an outlier. Most African-Americans were not nearly as critical of Lincoln as Douglas was at mm-hmm. various points in their in Lincoln's life and in their lives. And so, again, I think it's important to see their voices and their views in a way that can contextualize Douglas's criticism and show that Douglas is not necessarily a representative figure. Yeah, I, I don't think any um, intellectual, uh, <laughs> black or white, uh, you know, right or left, I, I, usually um, the chattering classes are um, a bit more... Uh, either to the left or to the right than, than the, the people in general, you know, or just uh, that I, I don't think you could use them as, as um, barometers of uh, public opinion in a, in a certain time period. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, well, there was a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about, but uh, that's right. We've already gone over an hour. Um, so um, last question you might have answered it with your last answer, but it's something I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. So um, I'll figure I'll ask you too. And if, if, if your last answer was sufficient, then you, know, you can just say, "Oh, that's pretty much uh, okay. what it said." But anyway, so um, last question: what uh, What would you like uh, your audience to get out of this book? What's What's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? I think we're in this moment where race is at the center of our discussions, whether it's politics or police or education. I mean, every it seems like every political question we're encountering in our society today focuses in some way on questions about race. And I wanted to, in this book, offer an alternative history to the one that is normally told. There's no doubt that racism and white supremacy have been very important parts of American history, and I think I address those in this book. But there are other aspects of the American story that need to be understood and and appreciated. And my hope in this book is to show that Lincoln was different than I think we often envision him, and that he offered an alternative path, an alternative viewpoint that could have been followed and sadly he was cut off too early in life to bring it to fruition one of the things i do in the close of the book is to show how things changed dramatically for the place of black people in the white house after lincoln's death and so my hope is that readers will find an interesting alternative story in this book and it'll give them a different way of thinking about race in american history all right great well, um, you got anything else uh, going on you want to plug? Any appearances? Uh, 
any social media or anything like that you want uh, people to know about other than the, yeah, uh, the book? Yeah, people can follow me on Twitter if they want at Civil War John, and that's J-O-N, not J-O-H-N, Civil War John. I'm the vice chair of the Lincoln Forum, which is a group that holds a, a major conference in Gettysburg every November, and we would love to have people who are interested in Lincoln come out to our events. We'll have wonderful speakers this year, people like John Meacham and, and others. They can find out about that at thelincolnforum.org. All right, great. Uh, well, again, uh, the book is A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. Uh, really fantastic um, book. Um it's it's funny how there's, there's still you know there's so many books written about Lincoln that you think you'd know everything pretty much <laughs> or uh, but it's always nice when there's something that comes along that lets you uh, appreciate um, or or to find things you didn't know and to appreciate in a new way things you did know and, and look at them from a different perspective or a perspective that you you hadn't considered. And uh, this is, and I read a lot of Lincoln stuff, as, as you guys on the podcast or listen to the podcast know. We do Lincoln crap all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so uh, this was it was really uh, nice for me to, to to find a book that you know that that told the story um, in a way I hadn't thought about it in a unique way. So I highly highly recommend it to uh, everybody out there. Again, uh, a house built by slaves, African American visitors to the Lincoln White House, and the author is Dr. Jonathan W. White. So, Dr. White, uh, thank you very, very much uh, for writing the book, one, and uh, two, for for coming on the podcast to uh, have a discussion with me about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do also have our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast, which I can never remember our Twitter handle. No, um, oh. <laughs> Twitter handle is uh, at illbooks at i l l books. So uh, you know, feel free to give us a follow or send us a DM or get in contact with us if uh, if you want to. Uh, you can reach out to us there as well. So uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Hi, Mom. Hi, Hi, Robbie. Love you both. Bye-bye. Do you remember the great president? His name was Abraham Lincoln. Around a hundred years or more. North and the South didn't like each other. Abraham Lincoln, oh, tried to pull them together. The North and the South, they fought. Abraham Lincoln freed the South, freed the slaves. Assassinated trying to pull the north and the south together. That's been a long, 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 long time ago. Way, way. 
Sabinated doing 